that was a little weird. Didn't expect Donnie to follow me up on stage. You doing all right? Doing all right? All right. You scared me there. I thought I had a stalker at first. I was going, that's not my wife. Don't know who that is following me up on stage. In his book, The Encyclopedia of the Roman Empire, Nigel Rogers tells about this Roman experience called the triumph. Whenever the Romans would have a great victory, they would, they would take the captives from that victory and they would march them through Rome with the emperor following humbly behind. They would take the emperor into the praetorium and, and there the praetorium guard would, would clothe him as like the gods, which is what they said. They would put a toga on him. And then they would take a laurel and they would crown his head. After they did that, they would march him through the streets to a place outside the city. And as they were doing that, they would shout out, Hail, the Son of God. Hail, the Son of God. When they arrived at the place, which was literally called the place of the skull, it was a place in Rome that they said that as they were building the city of Rome, they found this human skull, an intact skull. There, they would begin to, to worship the emperor. After they did that for a while, the emperor would walk up the steps of the temple of Saturn. There'd be one person on the left who would be shouting out, you are the son of God. The person on the other side would be reminding him that he was a mortal man. When he got to the top of the steps, they would give him a goblet of wine. And he would pour out the goblet of wine. And that was symbolizing the fact that the emperor would die for Rome and, and he would die for the gods. After he did that, they would sacrifice an animal. And, and that animal that was sacrificed would appease the gods. And after that sacrifice, they would have this great party, this great celebration. Now, with that in mind, I want you to think about the crucifixion. And I want you to remember that the Roman guards that we're going to focus on this morning knew all about this ceremony called the triumph. Some of them had most likely participated in it before as spectators, as bystanders. And now, as they were crucifying Jesus, I believe they had this in the back of their mind. Now, let me remind you of what happened that day. They flogged Jesus. They literally beat him without mercy until his, his back was, was opened up. His body would have been opened up through that whipping Many people say that his internal organs would have been exposed. Then they put a robe of purple on him. Think about the Roman emperor and the toga that they put on him. Then they took a crown of thorns and thrust it on his head. They didn't put a crown of laurels. They put a crown of thorns. Then they marched him through the city, and as they did, and as he was nailed to that cross, the crowd and the Roman soldiers began to shout out, Son of God! Son of God! Son of God! 
There was one person on one side of Jesus that was crucified that day that, that continued to make fun of him and mock him. There was another one that asked for Jesus to remember him. The Roman soldiers gave him wine mixed with myrrh. And I believe that they were doing all of that, mocking Jesus, calling him the Son of God. But something happened. The Roman centurion that was, that was responsible for Jesus' crucifixion, the Roman centurion that was in charge of these 100 soldiers, that was in charge of putting criminals to death, something happened to him. While Jesus was hanging on that cross, while he was watching him and observing him, something happened that changed his life forever. So this morning, what I want us to do is, is I want us to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. And I want us to read the story that took place about this Roman centurion to find out how his life was transformed. Let's begin with the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 50. Listen to what it says. Then Jesus shouted out again and he released his spirit. He died. At that moment, the curtain of the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. Rocks split apart and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that happened. They said, this man truly was the Son of God. Now turn to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23. And we're going to read verses 44 through 47. Listen to what Luke says. By this time it was noon and, and darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. Three hours of, of absolute darkness. The light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last breath. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshipped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. He was, he was righteous. And then Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15. Verses 37 through 39. Listen to what Mark says. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died. He exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. Now, the Romans had a well-trained and well-organized army. And in this army, they had these men called centurions. And centurions were officers who were responsible for 100 men. Now, most historians believe that, that during the time of Jesus, there was probably between 25 and 50 centurions 
in Israel. There were between 2,500 and 5,000 Roman soldiers in Israel at that time. And, and this particular centurion was given the task of overseeing crucifixions. Now to understand, crucifixions weren't something that happened seldom. They were something that happened often. We talked about this a little bit, but, but Roman crucifixions were used by the Romans to not only put a stop to crime, but to control people. And so whenever the Romans would come into an area to occupy that land, they would literally crucify thousands upon thousands of people. And this centurion, he was the one who was given the task of making sure that the crucifixions went through without a hitch. Now, if there were only 25 to 50 centurions and these men were the officers in the army, the chances are that one centurion knew the other centurions who were in Israel. They probably socialized together. They probably drank together. They, they ate together. And chances are they talked about the things that they experienced. And there was one centurion that the Gospels talk about, that Jesus had an encounter with. The Bible tells us that this centurion that Jesus encountered, he had a, a servant, a slave that was sick, and he came to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, you have the power to heal my servant by simply saying a word. You don't even have to go to him. You don't have to lay hands on him. All you do is speak a word. I know that you have the authority. And Jesus said, Never in all of Israel have I seen such faith as yours. And the Roman centurion's servant was healed. This centurion, I don't know if he became a follower of Jesus or not, but most likely when he sat down with the other centurions over a meal as they were talking, they talked about that. They talked about this Jew from Nazareth who had, who had healed his servant. They, they talked about how compassionate and kind he was about the things that he taught and now this centurion who had heard about Jesus was tasked with putting him to death we don't know if he is the one who flogged Jesus or not but he was certainly there giving the order for Jesus to be flogged to be beaten until this centurion said enough is enough he was there with them as they walked through the city and the people mocked Jesus and spit on Jesus and made fun of Jesus. He would have been the one who, who ordered his hands tied and then his wrist and his feet nailed to that cross. The Bible tells us that, that he was making fun of Jesus with, with all the other soldiers that day. But then something happened. We don't know what happened. We don't know whether he heard some words that Jesus said and, and that's what changed his life. We don't know if it was how Jesus died. That's how his life was changed. We don't know if, if Jesus said something personally to that centurion. We don't know but what we do know is that his life was changed. His heart and his mind were transformed. And that's how salvation is. You see, salvation 
occurs in each of our lives differently. For, for some of us, it's a, it's a time of tragedy, and, and that tragedy gets our attention, and it, and it draws us to God, and we cry out to God, and he saves us. For others of us, we're, we're caught in sin, and, and we begin to feel the shame and the despair and the agony that that sin has brought into our life, and, and we cry out to Jesus. For some of us, it may be that we've experienced everything that this world has to offer. We have a great family life. We have a great job. We live in a great community. We have it all, but we're still empty inside. And our emptiness causes us to cry out to Jesus. You see, each of us are drawn to that point where we cry out to Jesus in different ways. But for us to be saved... We all end up crying out to Jesus and we're transformed. And so that's what I want us to focus on this morning as we look at this centurion. What was it that he did that transformed his life? Because I'm here to tell you, you cannot read the Gospels and understand the background without understanding that his life was eternally changed. And I believe in these stories we see three things that were involved in the transformation in this centurion's life. Here's the first thing. He was overcome with fear. That's the first thing that happened. We are told that the centurion and everyone present was terrified by the earthquake and everything else that happened. But I want you to hear me. They weren't simply afraid or terrified because of the earthquake or the darkness that covered the earth or the things that they heard about. I'm convinced that they were terrified because God showed up. They were convinced that the things that were happening, the earthquake, the darkness, and everything else was God's judgment upon them. Now, we talked about the fear of God a little bit last week as we looked at that thief that was hanging on the cross and he asked the other thief, don't you fear God? But I think it's important for us to look at this again a little bit more this morning because I'm afraid that there's a lot of confusion when it comes to fearing God. You see, when the Bible talks about fearing God, it's not talking about the kind of fear that we have when we're a little kid and we see the neighborhood bully coming toward us. It's not the kind of fear that we have when we see a snake or a spider and we jump out of our skin. And it's certainly not the kind of fear that we have when we hear the number 13 or Friday the 13th comes up and we have this superstitious fear. Fearing God isn't like that. But at the same time, fearing God is not simply reverence or awe or respect. There are some people that say the fear of God is kind of like when you enter into the office of the president or the office of royalty and you're in awe because of the person that you're before. I'm here to tell you that, that I have 
seen dignity. I have been before people in power. and I was not fearing them the same way that I fear God. You see, the fear of God is much more than respect. It's much more than reverence. But it's not like being afraid of the neighborhood bully. In the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, who was a theologian and he was a pastor, preached a sermon. And he preached the sermon that day word for word, reading it from his manuscript. The title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's not the kind of sermon that most people would preach today. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But after he got through preaching that message, people in the church that day literally were crawling and, and, and weeping and walking down the aisle overcome with terror, knowing that one day they would face the judgment of God. And they repented of their sins. They trusted Jesus And God used that one sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, the fear of God to usher in the great awakening in America, the greatest revival that America has ever experienced. Understand, we don't hear a lot about that today. We say that we should focus on the love of God. And hear me, I am all for the love of God. I thank God. For the love of God that caused him to sacrifice his son Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for a sinner like me. I am so thankful for God's love. But I'm also thankful for the fear of God that came into my heart as a lost sinner. This is how I equate the fear of God. When I was growing up, my dad, who was a pastor but was also a Marine before then, was the biggest strongest, smartest guy in the world in my mind. And I felt like he knew everything. And because he knew everything, you know what that meant? If I did something wrong, he would find out about it. I couldn't hide things from him. I tried. I did my best. But he would always find out when I did something wrong. And let me tell you, He was the strongest man around. I didn't want to get a whipping from my dad, and he would whip me. And let me tell you, when he whipped me, it hurt. It hurt. It wasn't one of those little pansy whippings. I mean, it was a whipping that got my attention and let me realize that what I was doing was wrong. And so there was a part of me as a little boy that feared my dad. Now, did the fear of my dad cause me to not love my dad? Absolutely not. I love my dad more than words can describe. I was so proud that he was my dad. And yet, I was fearful of him. When I did something wrong, I knew that I could get punished. I knew that he might discipline me. And I knew that when he did, he always loved me. I knew he always cared for me, but I feared him. Did my fear of my dad cause me to think he didn't love me? No. I knew he loved me. I knew that he was willing to give his life for me. And yet, 
a part of me still feared him. You see, that's how it is with God. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, tells the story of Susan and Lucy who are about to meet Aslan. And Aslan is the lion who symbolizes Jesus in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver trying to prepare these two girls to meet Aslan. And, and Susan says this. She said, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver says, that you will, dearie. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or they're just silly. Then he isn't safe, Lucy said. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, that's God. God is the all-powerful God. And when we come into his presence, it should cause our knees to quake a little bit. When we understand that one day we're going to stand before Almighty God, it should put some fear into our mind. But knowing God doesn't just cause us to fear him. Knowing God causes us to love him. You see, a relationship with God begins with fear. It really does. It always does. But it doesn't end there. The fear never goes away. It morphs, it grows, it changes. But the fear is always there. I think David said it perfectly in the Psalms. I want you to listen to what David said in Psalm 118, verse 4. He said, let all who fear the Lord repeat. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to those who fear the Lord, right? Let all who fear the Lord repeat. What do you repeat? His faithful love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord repeat this. His faithful love endures forever. You see, there are two columns in this relationship with God. There's this fear of God that is more than reverence, more than respect, more than all. Those words will never do it justice. But there's love. Love of God that, that causes us to love him. With all of our heart. He feared God. But then his fear turned into faith. As Jesus breathed his last breath, this Roman centurion looked up at Jesus and said, Certainly, surely, without a doubt, this was the Son of God. The word surely or truly there is the same Greek word that we find in John 14, verse 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. It's a word that means absolute truth. This man wasn't just making a statement. He wasn't making a claim. This man was saying, with all my heart, I believe that this man who is hanging on this cross is the Son of God. Caesar, 
who is on the throne in Rome, he's not the son of God. The emperor who rules, he's not the son of God. The one on this cross, he's the son of God. He's God Almighty. All of a sudden, this Roman centurion, who probably had no understanding of the Jewish religion, we're not told that he was a God-fearer or anything like that, but all of a sudden, as he watched Jesus on that cross, and he saw Jesus die, and he heard his words, he became convinced that this one who is dying is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who's come to set us free. And he didn't just believe it. Listen, he proclaimed it. He didn't keep it to himself. Out loud before the other soldiers who were under him, out loud before the crowd that was around him, out loud so that anyone could report it to Pilate or anyone who was in charge over him, he said, certainly, without a doubt, this is the Son of God. He totally and completely placed his faith in Jesus. His fear led to faith. And then his faith led to worship. In Luke's gospel, it says that he worshiped God. The Greek literally says that he gave glory to God. The Greek word is doxa. It's the word that we get our word doxology from. When I was growing up, we'd sing the doxology occasionally on, on Sunday morning after we did the offering, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. And what this soldier is doing is in light of who Jesus is, he's giving glory to God. Can I tell you? Will you listen? When we truly have faith in Jesus... It will always lead us to worship. Not worship that is singing a song, though that can be worship. Not worship that is joining together with other people on a Sunday morning, though that can be worship. No. Worship as in giving glory to God with your life, with your words, with your deeds. He literally began to give Glory to God. He was no longer pledging allegiance to Rome. It was no longer the one who sat on the throne in Rome who was in control. It was God Almighty whose son had just died on the cross for him. There was a movie that came out in 1976. It was called Jesus of Nazareth. It was, it was an eight-hour mini-series. And you could probably still watch that mini-series this week at some time because it's all about Easter and, and Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And in that movie, Ernest Borgnine plays the centurion who was at the cross. 
Now, for some of you who are younger, you probably don't know who that is, but Ernest Borgnine was a big actor back in the 60s and the 70s, but this was just a little small part. Now, all he was really doing was was focusing on on the cross. And, And this is what Ernest Borgnine says. I want to read it to you. He says, when it came time for my scene during the crucifixion, the weather was chill and gray. The camera was to be focused on me at the foot of the cross, and so it was not necessary for Robert Powell, who played Jesus, to be there. Instead, Zeffirelli, the director, put a chalk mark on a piece of scenery behind the cameraman. I want you to look at that mark, he told me, as if you were looking at Jesus. I hesitated. Somehow I wasn't ready. I, wasn't e- I was uneasy. Do you think it would be possible for somebody to read from the Bible the words Jesus said as he Hung on the cross, I ask. I knew the words well from the days of my childhood in an Italian-American family in Connecticut. I'd read them in preparation for this film, but even so, I wanted to hear them now. I'll do it myself, Zeffirelli said. He found a Bible, opened it to the book of Luke, and signaled for the camera to start rolling. As Zeffirelli began reading Christ's words aloud, I stared at That chalk mark thinking what might have gone through the centurion's mind. That poor man up there, I thought. I met him when he healed my servant who is like a son to me, Jesus says. He is the son of God, an unfortunate claim during these perilous times. But I I know he's innocent of any crime. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The voice of Zephyrilis, but the words burned into me. The words of Jesus. Forgive me, Father, for even being here was the centurion's prayer that formed in my thoughts. I am so ashamed, so ashamed. Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise, said Jesus to the thief hanging next to him. If Jesus can forgive that criminal, then he will forgive me, I thought. I will lay down my sword and retire to my little farm outside of Rome. Then it happened. As I stared upward, instead of the chalk mark, I suddenly saw the face of Jesus, lifelike and clear. It was not the face of Robert Powell who played Jesus that I was seeing, but but rather the most beautiful, gentle visage I have ever known. Pain-seared, sweat-stained with blood flowing down from the thorns pressed deep. His face was still filled with compassion. He looked down at me through tragic, sorrowful eyes with an expression of love beyond description. And then his cry arose against the desert wind. Not the voice of Zeffirelli reading from the Bible, but the voice of Jesus himself. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In all, I watched Jesus' head slump to one side. I knew he was dead. A terrible grief welled within me and and completely oblivious To the camera, I started sobbing uncontrollably. Cut, yelled Zeffirelli. Olivia Hussey and Ann Bancroft were crying too. I I wiped my eyes and looked up again where I'd seen Jesus. He was gone. Whether I saw a vision of Jesus that windswept day or whether it was only something in my mind, I do not know. It doesn't matter. For what I do know is that it was a profound spiritual experience And that I have not quite been the same person since. As that centurion learned 2,000 years ago, I too have found 
that you simply cannot come close to Jesus without being changed. That's true. You can't come to Jesus without being changed. That's why Jesus called it a new birth, a fresh start, a a new beginning. When God's Spirit comes to live in us, we are transformed. We're made brand new. We're not sinless. We still live in a sinful body and we struggle with temptations, but inside of us, there's been a change that leads to a change on the outside of us. And I believe that's what happened to that centurion. That's what happened to that thief on the cross. That's what happened to Simon of Serene. They met Jesus. And their life was changed. What about you? Has your life been changed? Are you prepared to stand before God? Knowing that his spirit in you has made you a new person. If not, then don't leave here today without humbling yourself before God. Asking him to forgive your sin. Trusting what he did on the cross to save you. Giving your life to him. Because I'm here to tell you, if you do You'll never regret it. There's a lot of regrets I have in life. But giving my life to Jesus is not one of them. It's the most wise, the smartest, the best thing I've ever done. Because it restored a relationship that was broken because of sin. God can do the same thing for you. So I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. If you're here, your heart's never been transformed by by Jesus. Then I want to encourage you today to humble yourself and pray this prayer, giving your life to Jesus. Dear God, I humbly come to you today, admitting that I am a sinner. I've disobeyed you. I've lived life my way, not your way. I know my best will never be good enough. So today I'm trusting you. I believe you came to this earth. You died on a cross so I could be forgiven. I'm surrendering my all to you today. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me brand new, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.